Okay, everybody, um, if you're wondering why we're wearing microphones when we don't have any speakers, I don't know if you've noticed that there are no speakers. Uh, we're doing that for the, for the live stream or for the camera, at least. We'll be recording this uh, for that purpose, but uh, because Central's doing a lot of stuff here, I think, is it the consignment shop? Is that what's going on this week here in the building? Okay, they, they had a thing here where they were doing a consignment shop, and so we have a temporary stage situation right now. Well, no stage, really. Mm. And then uh, next Sunday, the plan is that we will also not be able to be in here. Central's going to be using the gym during this hour, and so we will be in the sanctuary next Sunday at 2 o'clock for our Sunday school. And I think that's it. So let's go ahead and we'll pray. And today we're going to be discussing post-millennialism uh, on the millennial views that we've been walking through. And uh, so, uh, Greg, could you open us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for how uh, kind and gracious you are to give us a book that we can study. Lord, you don't leave this to us to figure out on our own. You tell us all that we need for life and godliness. Uh, and Lord, we have hope for the future. Lord, we know, uh, as all believers confess without any shadow of doubt, that Jesus will come again in power and glory, physically, visibly, to conquer his enemies, to consummate the, his work for his people and bring in the, the greatest reality is that we will get to be with our Savior forever. Um, Lord, where there's disagreements, again, I pray you'd help us be charitable. Um, but Lord, help us have firm conviction. Lord, you gave us your word, so these things still matter. And I pray, Lord, that uh, today we'd be clear um, and that we'd help one another better understand what you have revealed in your word. Lord, with the goal that we become more like Jesus and that we walk with a greater hope in the midst of these dark days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, just again, to kind of refresh ourselves, it can, it's easy to get lost here. The three different, three of the positions to how to interpret Revelation that we've been talking about uh, we're ignoring one called the historicist view because not many people hold that view at all. But uh, the futurist view, uh, the preterist view, which we'll be talking a lot about today, and the other one is called the idealist view. And the big debate is basically saying from Revelation for the meat of the book, for most of the book, are we discussing things that are going to take place almost entirely in the future uh, in, say, a seven-year period of tribulation? Or are we referring to things that are going to, um, that, that are happening throughout church history, patterns that repeat throughout church history and have an ultimate fulfillment at the very end, which is the view we've been arguing for. The other view, which is the post-millennial perspective, I hope these terms start to make sense as we keep talking through them, but the post-millennial perspective would say that the book of Revelation, uh, in fact, you can go ahead and open to chapter 20 just so we have it in front of us, that the book of Revelation all the way up <clears throat> to chapter, <clears throat> all the way up through chapter 19, is dealing with things that have already happened in their totality uh, before right now. And so uh, I know I've, I mentioned it before, Doug Wilson is probably one of the most well-known uh, post-millennial people on the planet today. He's very popular. Uh, well, he's probably not very popular, but he's at least somewhat <laughs> popular and uh, a loud spokesman for this view. This is his commentary on Revelation, which I've read most of. It's not very big, uh, but he does a good job laying out the position. But uh, he, he will say things like, chapter 20 is the first time in Revelation we're looking to our future. So when you read all the seals, trumpets, and bowls, and all the judgments, and everything going on in Revelation, what, chapters uh, 6, 7, 8, all the way through 16, 17, 18, 19, he thinks all of the destruction and judgment and the bowls and the wrath and all being poured out already happened in its entirety in the year 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. 
And that is a very, very different way to read Revelation than even the one we've been arguing for. And so uh, he gives his best case for it. I, I just don't find it personally persuasive much at all, to be honest. But he, he would argue that Revelation is mainly referring to 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem, and that chapter 20 is the first time we're really talking about the return of Christ in the whole book of Revelation. So it's pretty, pretty amazing, that position. Uh, it was prominent in some of the Puritans. I think I mentioned Jonathan Edwards. Now listen, we, we, we love Jonathan Edwards' theology. He's had a huge impact on me personally. Scott, my brother, uh, one of the elders here, he was converted in part by reading Jonathan Edwards' sermons uh, when he was 21 years old uh, in 2000, early 2004. So we, we have great admiration for him. He was a strong post-millennial perspective person as well. And remember, just real quick, post-millennialism is the idea that most of Revelation has already happened and that the idea is that we are entering into, we're going to enter into a golden era in church history where the millennium represents church history. The thousand years is a symbol for all of church history. And we agree with that, but we think our millennial view, we think that, that millennium is happening in heaven right now with deceased saints who are reigning with Christ. He believes, or this view believes, that the reign is happening on earth. And the idea is that the church will triumph from glory to glory over time to where the earth becomes phenomenally Christianized. And now there's, there's a portion of this I can agree with. I do think the Great Commission will be successful over the planet. I think people will be converted from where? Every nation group, every ethnicity. We, we believe that. So th there's going to be a real triumph of the gospel. I mean, think about it. In 2,000 years, has the gospel transformed the Western world? Absolutely it has. So there, there's a sense of, I have an optimism about these things. I, 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 can, I can sympathize with that. But their, their view pushes it, I think, far beyond I want to say this humbly, but I think far beyond the biblical evidence, they, they push it to say that basically by the end when Christ comes back, there will be an enormous number of genuinely converted people in the world, a massive proportion of genuinely saved people, and that culture will become almost entirely Christianized to, to where really um, there will be a small minority of unbelievers left in the world, and they still believe there will be a final revolt against Christ at the very end led by Satan when he's released from the pit. They believe that, but they, they think that there's going to be incredibly an optimistic perspective on the future, and people will ask Doug Wilson, you know, the last few years, does that make you discouraged about post-millennialism? Like, look, look, look around us. Like, things don't look great. And he says, well, we've got to take a long-view perspective. I'm not saying every year it gets obviously better. I'm saying every 500-year gap of church history have things gotten better. Well, I think we would agree. Yeah, every 500 years, things are getting generally better. But how much better is it going to get before Christ returns? That, that's kind of where the debate uh, takes place. So, Greg, you want to uh, jump in here? Yeah, um, I agree with Mark on this. Like, the more I study this position, the less convinced I am that it's reflective of what's in the text. Like, it's not, it's, you know, like with dispensationalism and other views, it's not impossible from the text. I'm just less and less convinced that that's where the text is going. I listened um, to an interview that Doug Wilson gave this week. I listened to uh, an interview with Jeff Durbin, who's, yeah. uh, you know, the, the head of Apologia, which is Apologia Church in uh, Arizona. It's where James White's at. Got they're a big, all post-mill. Yeah, they're all post-mill. Um, and listening to these guys and, um, you know, trying to, you know, look at Scripture in light of what they're saying, I, I, it just, oh, like, you, you have to ignore the context, really, in order to get to that position on a number of places. Um, and, you know, context is always one of those things. We want to give due attention to what surrounds whatever text we're reading. We never read a text in isolation. Um, and post-millennialists would generally say, well, we, we don't want to do that either. 
but there was a number of them, and one in particular, and I mean, I know we're going to look more in depth at it, that just really shocked me with Doug Wilson. Now, in Revelation 20, you know, we, we've talked about like first resurrection, second death, all that kind of stuff. Um, they, the guy that was interviewing Doug Wilson asked him about the first resurrection. Well, what, what is that in the post-millennial perspective? Um, and not letting Revelation 20 tell him what the first resurrection is, first and foremost, Doug's answer, and this was the only answer he gave, because I, I texted you guys about it, because I was like, I can't believe he said this, was um, when Jesus rose from the dead, and you know, you read in Matthew, it says other people rose from the dead and appeared to different people in Jerusalem and all of that. He said, well, it was them and all the Old Testament saints. That's the first resurrection. And that, I was just like, like, it was, I don't know where he got that because you look at how Revelation 20 talks about the, those who came to life in this first resurrection. It's those who went through the great tribulation. It's those who didn't worship the beast, who didn't receive its mark. Um, and, you know, again, regardless whether you're pre-mill or ah-mill, nobody disagrees with that part. Like the, the, the first resurrection is dealing contextually with, with people here. And like, so where he got that, I have no idea, but it's indicative of the fact that um, you have a system and you have to make a text fit a system and he's already come to certain conclusions. And so he has to go somewhere with that, that, that takes him out of the text. My struggle with Post Mill is that, and, and this is in sync with many uh, uh commentators that we follow but Burkhoff who's Louis Burkhoff uh, says that the related idea that the present age will not end in a great cataclysmic change but will pass almost imperceptibly into the coming age is really unscriptural now they do the post mill people do talk about a at the very end mm -hmm. but uh, we know from just going to and I I credit both of these guys. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. All you have to do is to read Matthew 24. Go no further than that, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus talks about a lot of struggles all the way to the end, including the man of lawlessness. Um, now, initially he talks about basically the temple, the AD 70 when the, when, when the temple's destroyed. But he, he covers the whole period of time between his first and second coming and and it's going to get really bad at the end and 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 and, and, and but their view the post-millennial view does not reflect that for example in um uh, i was looking earlier at hebrews hebrews 12 um oh let's see hebrews 12 26 and 27 he says see that uh, let's see. At that time, his voice shook the earth. Now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire there's going to be a shaking of this very creation a decreation if you must because he's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth 
And, and I don't see that in their view. No, that's helpful. So if, if you have a, just I want to show you an example of one thing. Hold your spot in Revelation and turn to 2 Timothy 3. And you can multiply examples of this kind of thing. I just want to give you one example of it. But you can find a bunch of these in the New Testament. And I want to give you a sampling for how the preterist view changes how you read a whole bunch of passages of the Bible in a way that I don't think is right. Uh, it's how they talk about the last days. You know how many texts speak about, like, James will say, be careful the judge is standing at the door. Like, Jesus' return could happen soon. There's all these texts, the last days, the end of the age, all those kinds of verses, they're all over the place. Doug has a very different way of reading these texts than we would, in fact, than almost anybody would. Look at 2 Timothy 3. You'll see the phrase, last days. But understand this, that in the last days, there will become times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now just stop there. I think that is going to go on from the time Paul wrote, there were those people, because they were in the last days then. I think that's going to go on until when? Jesus comes back. People loving pleasure, people being, but, but Doug, the post-mill view takes these verses very differently. They will say the last days are the last days of the Judaic aeon, the Judaic era, which ends officially in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. So he would say Jesus did come back. The judge was at the door and Jesus did come back. He returned in, invisibly in 70 AD behind the Roman army and destroyed Jerusalem. And again, there's a grain of truth here. God's judgment is behind the destruction of Jerusalem. That's true. But that's not the return of Christ. And so what, what you see is with the preterist view, they take a ton of texts that speak of the last days and J Jesus coming in judgment, and they say, that already happened. The last days ended almost 2,000 years ago. In 70 AD, that was the last day. And, and the Judaic aeon came to an end, and now we are in the new era of the kingdom. And they would say basically that there's a massive dis disjunction that's happened after 70 AD, and that these last days fulfillments of these... These last day warnings of sin and falling away and apostasy, those happened. It's over now. Now we're in the era of triumph. Now we're in the era of God reigning. Well, of course, God is reigning. But again, what do you mean by that? And that they're going to argue after 70 AD, now we're moving towards the new creation basically coming in the here and now, that God's reign is going to take over this world. And these last day warnings no longer apply to us today in the same way because they're over. And, and you read those texts and you go, wow, even R.C. Sproul was a partial preterist. And R.C. Sproul's book on the, on the end times, The Last Days According to Jesus, which we've all read, uh, I love R.C. Sproul. My goodness, we, we, we love that man. But on this issue, I just think his preterist position, uh, it changes how you read dozens of these texts. And I, I don't think he was right on that. Uh, and I, I've learned much from R.C. Sproul, but I, I don't think his, his partial preterist view is correct. Well, in, in light of what you were saying, too, if it's all already happened, then so much of the New Testament is now irrelevant to us. I mean, it just is. Maybe like in, a, in an analogical sense, maybe, well, it's an analogy but it just, it, it becomes irrelevant for us at this point. Um, and an, another thing with, with the post-mill view, um, you know, we don't make a, a big deal or talk about this a lot, but like, you know, the, it's pretty settled when the New Testament was actually written. Um, you know, John, his gospel probably written after the destruction of Jerusalem, um, his letters possibly, and definitely Revelation. Um, we hold, and I think for really, really good reasons, that Revelation was written in the 90s A.D., um, post-millennialists, and this is one of the linchpins of their system, they say Revelation had to be written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It had to be, had to be. If it wasn't, 
And you can prove that just from that point alone, you undermine the entire yeah. thing. Um, now, there's, you know, they try to say, oh, it's exegetically based and all of that. But the, you know, the arguments and the evidence for a pre-70 writing of Revelation are so unconvincing to me. And you have to string things together and you, you have to make the text, like you were saying, you have to make the text say things it doesn't say in order to justify dating the book that early. Um, and it just doesn't work. Now, there's a whole... There's a lot of arguments we could put into showing why that is the case, but Revelation was the last book of the Bible written. It was written in the 90s AD, um, and if that one thing is allowed, the rest of postmillennialism goes. What did they do with, just curious, what did they do with the 20th century? Well, they say there's, there's hiccups and, you know, there's three That's steps forward, two steps back, <laughs> um, that kind of thing. That's what, that's what they argue, but it's like they've almost given themselves an out no matter what. Ha oh, well, it's just, you know, a little bit longer, a little bit. And it's well, you know, I, yeah, that's right. D Doug has been asked, like, what do you do with, like, you said, like, more, more people have been martyred for the faith of, in Christ in the last hundred years than in the last 19 Absolutely. centuries put together. So that doesn't look like triumph. That looks like uh, a lot of co being, being killed. And so Doug would say, yeah, I, I don't deny that that's true. He would say, but we're still in the early church history. So we're probably in the first tenth of church history. It could go on for another 20,000 years, and we're in like the very beginning. Well, I mean, maybe, but maybe not. I mean, like, how do you prove that? It's like he's basically arguing in a kind of funny way there. What I would say is, and this is something you can only really see as you walk through text, but as I've listened to different people speak on this position, here's what you'll find over and over, in my opinion. You'll have a text, and the text seems to have an obvious, obvious meaning. And then the post-millennial position will take one of the least obvious interpretations and then try to argue for it. So what you end up having to do is you have to take, what, 30, 40 passages, and you have to take the seemingly much less likely interpretation on almost all of them to get post-millennialism to work. And just to give you an example, if you're in Revelation still, look at 19, and you know this passage, it's very well known, but let me just read part of it, and then I'll tell you how Doug Wilson interprets it. Uh, Revelation 19:11. So we're at the, almost at the end of the book. Then I saw heaven opened... And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, etc. Now, I mean, I, it's very clear to me this is the return of Christ. I mean, this text to me is just evidently the return of Christ. I mean, you see how clear that, I mean, I think it's very clear. That, and that's what virtually all Christians in church history have understood. This is Christ's second coming. On the white horse, sword coming out of his mouth, judging the nations in rebellion, rescuing his people, right? Now, the two different ways post-millennial people take this text will probably surprise you. Probably the most popular way, and Doug does not take this view, but the most popular way post-mill takes this passage is this is a symbol for the triumph of the gospel throughout church history. The idea is the sword coming out of his mouth is the gospel, and the way he destroys, kills his enemies, and tramples on them is by converting them to faith in Christ. And I'm going, 
Listen, I understand symbolism is in Revelation. We argued for symbolism. I don't think that's what's going on in this text at all. I think this is God coming in judgment on his enemies, not him defeating his enemies through conversion with the sword of his word. I don't think that's what this is. I mean, he tramples the winepress of the fury and wrath of God the Almighty. That's a picture of converting the nations? I don't think so. But Doug does not take that view. Doug, this may surprise me even more. Here's Doug's take on how to interpret that passage. In this passage, Christ is coming to judge and make war. It is commonly and wrongly assumed that this is a description of the second coming. But there are sound reasons for continuing to believe that this is his fierce judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. So he still thinks the whole book of Revelation is about AD 70. Uh, The judgment falls on the beast and the false prophet, which we've already identified, he claims, with uh, enemies in the first century. Now, I mean, is it inconceivable? I mean, I guess you can make that argument but it seems far, far less likely than the most obvious interpretation that almost everyone in every other view holds, which is this is the return of Christ uh, for, for final judgment. Do so you see what I'm saying? You have a much less likely interpretation, and you have to do this several dozen times with passages in the New Testament to get the post-millennial position to work out at the end of the day. So I'm like, okay, if you have to keep taking the less likely interpretation and forcing it to work, and you do it over, I mean, I can understand once or twice you have to kind of try to figure something out. But if you have to do that over and over with passages that seem clear to not, clearly not to refer to that, uh, I think you start to have a, a major problem on your hand. We believe in the Great Commission. I mean, Matthew 28 is recited all the time, and, and, and uh, the Amel view is that great gains, great strides are being made all over the world uh, for faith in Christ. And, but there's a lot of martyrdom. There, and this will continue until Christ comes back. Uh, whether the whole world, I don't, I don't see the whole world converting. I think more and more people will be one to Christ. More people groups are being reached now more than ever. I was talking to David Stearns the other day, and great work is being done in Nepal. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of believers. Who would have thought in Nepal? Mm. Uh, but that, that's going on. But there's also great persecution. A lot of people are dying for the gospel. And, um, and I think that's going to continue. Uh, they see a greater and greater degree of success worldwide Christianity. I don't think the Bible teaches that. We're teaching, so see if this makes sense. There's a, there's a version of premillennialism that can go more left behind way, which tends to be very pessimistic about the future. Just everything is going to go terribly, like just this horribly pessimistic view of the future. And then you have post-mill, which is unbelievably optimistic, I think, to the breaking point about the future. Like, how Christianized is the world going to get? Now, I'm not trying to be the happy middle here, but maybe I am being the happy middle here. With the Amil position, we believe both sides of this thing. We believe that there will be ramping up persecution against the church. The, the evil people will go on being uh, deceived and being deceived all the way to the end. There's going to be intensified persecution, the beast, the false prophet. There's also going to be intensified um, triumph of the gospel across the world. And I think this view holds those two parts of the Bible together so well. Because in one view, if you only take the triumphing verses, you have to sort of white out the uh, persecution verses. And if you only focus on the persecution verses, you kind of white out the triumph verses. But the Amil view doesn't minimize either of those. We believe in the triumph of the gospel and horrific future persecution of the church. And I think both of those are taught in Scripture, and they go side by side. As the gospel shines brighter, the darkness wants to come out all the more dark against it. And even in our culture today, do we see that? 
The, the more we want to cling to the Bible, the more people want to oppose it. And I think that right now you have genuine Christianity is going to shine right now in our culture while it's being all the more opposed and, and, and pushed up against. Well, I mean, that's Matthew 24. If we want to look there yeah, real let's quick, let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Uh, this is an important passage uh, as well. So thinking about, you know, the gospel triumphing and seeing it go to every nation, seeing people from all over converted, while at the same time, difficulty, persecution, all of that happening. This is exactly what Jesus says mm -hmm. and what he lays out for us in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. It's called Olivet Discourse because he's doing it, teaching this from the Mount of Olives. Um, he says this, look at verse 4. He says, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And... Um, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And then here's the encouraging part. One, he who endures to the end will be saved in 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And mm. then the end will come. And so, yes, the gospel is going to go forth everywhere. Everywhere the gospel is going to penetrate um, Satan's hold on people and men from every tribe, tongue, language and people, men and women are going to come to faith in Jesus. And as that happens, we're going to be delivered up to tribulation. We're going to be put to death. We're going to be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many are going to fall away and betray one another, false prophets and all that, at the same time. Not pre-70 AD and now it's not that, it's at the same time. It's not one or the other, it's both and. And that's actually something like, you know, not everything is... is you know, both and some things are either or, but we got to let the text lead us uh, in terms of how we're supposed to understand what's going on. Back in Revelation 19, again, let the, let the text, let the text lead us on this. And against that mindset that says, you know, <clears throat> the sword coming from his mouth is, you know, is the gospel conquering and all of that. Well, there's language in Revelation already supplied for people coming to faith, for people being converted through the gospel. There's constant calls to repent, give glory to God. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. Your faith, like there's all kinds of language in Revelation that talks about conversion and those who know Jesus. That's not used here at all. The only language used for the enemies is that they're destroyed, killed, um, and judged. There's no indication whatsoever in the text that something good happens to them. And it's really just um, the symbolism means, well, he, you know, he's converting them to Jesus. That isn't what happens here. Like, again, you have to import this other, you have to import your conclusion into the text in order to see it there because you're not going to discover it from the text itself. Yeah, I, I know we're flipping a lot, but can we flip back to Matthew, this time with chapter 13? This is, this is one of the key post-mill passages and... I, again, I just don't find it persuasive. I think I can affirm everything in this text without becoming a post-millennial person. Uh, Matthew 13, this is a go-to passage for, for that group. Uh, the mustard seed and the leaven um, parables. Matthew 13, 31. 
Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, do you see where the post-millennial person goes with, that, with those two parables? The kingdom starts imperceptibly small, like the smallest seed or like a little bit of leaven, and, and, and suddenly what happens? Over time, imperceptibly, it begins to grow, and suddenly this little seed becomes the largest in the garden, or the, the, the leaven goes through all the flour, and it was all leavened. Well, you see, they're saying this like the, the gospel takes over the world, right? That's how they're interpreting this. And they, they would also use Daniel 2. Do you remember uh, the statue with the four kinds of metals that we've talked about? What happens? God takes a, stone from, takes a stone cut without human hands, which is the Messiah. He throws the stone and it hits the statue where? At the feet. The feet, the clay feet. And the statue tumbles and the, the stone becomes a great mountain taking over the world, which represents God's kingdom taking over the world. Now, we do believe one day God's kingdom will fully take over the world. That's going to happen in the new creation, new, new right? Creation. There will be the new Jerusalem, God will reign, and the tree will take over the whole world. That's, that's certainly true. But this text does not say exactly how triumphant the gospel is going to be in this age, right? In this, in this time period that we're living in. And you have to... You have to assume that this is saying total takeover before Christ comes back, which I don't think the rest of Scripture bears that out. So I think this is saying the gospel is going to triumph throughout the nations. Finally, Jesus will come back and the world will become entirely Christ's world. He will, he will inherit the whole thing. But you can still affirm all of this passage without, uh, without going all the way to the, uh, to the post-mill uh, perspective. Well, look again. Stay in Matthew 13. Yeah. What's interesting about that is they pick uh, two places, um, two two parables in the midst of a larger section on parables. And if you just read the parable that he gives mm. before this and then the interpretation after it, it completely undermines <laughs> what they're saying. Um, let's read that beginning in verse 24, Matthew 13. We know this parable, but again, apply it in light of the post-millennial perspective. And it, you see post-millennial just doesn't work. It says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, he then gives the two that Mark quoted that the postmillennialists love to use, and then Jesus in verse 34 and 35, you know, says this is fulfilling scripture, and then verse 36, his disciples come and they say, explain that parable of the weeds of the field. Okay, Jesus, what did you mean by that? And so listen, here's... Jesus' own interpretation and see if um, which view this fits better with. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And so what Jesus is saying is the righteous and the wicked are going to both be in the world until the very end. And what happens when the wicked are removed? It's not symbolic, like they are utterly removed. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. This is final judgment language, which lines up with everything else in the gospels that Jesus, all the language that Jesus uses about final judgment. And so even here in a surrounding the passages they love to use to support their position is a whole interpretation and understanding of history that utterly contradicts the view. That's a great point. That is a more than great point. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I'd have thought of that Uh, because I remember when we were teaching this at at Watkinsville and and we had a member, our big group we met on Wednesday and, and that's called the, the sowing of the, that uh, bad seed is called Darnell. And, I, and Carlos Sibley, the pastor there, said, you know, he knew about Darnell. I mean, it's a real thing that sometimes people sow into an opponent's field. Wow. I mean, so, I mean, that's, it was a, it's a, mm. even today in 2022, it's a graphic example of, of mm. deception and, 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 but how you have both growing together. And if you, if you, have you ever tried to, to, to prune a garden or something like that with, with, with and, and you're, you're pulling up your good plants along with the right. weeds. So it's hard it, sometimes it, it because is. the roots of the weeds it, it get is. so, because we, we have to deal with this sometimes we got a raised bed garden. That's exactly like the weeds. If you don't get them soon enough, you pull the weeds out, you're pulling out yeah, the good yeah, stuff Absolutely. Too. Cause the roots are entangled. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so the, the idea there being the weeds and wheat are going to grow together until the return of Christ. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Jesus, Matthew 7, we could use Matthew all day long here. This is a great book to go to to refute postmillennialism. But I mean, Matthew 7, the broad way leads to destruction. The narrow way leads to life. And there are few who find it. That does not sound like postmillennial theology at all. It sounds like there's going to be a few who truly understand the gospel and the majority don't. And that sounds like until he returns, not just the Jewish era until 70, 80. No, that's, that's throughout human history. It's always going to be the minority that have uh, genuine faith in Christ. Let me take you to one more place in Matthew, Matthew 24. Didn't plan to spend this much time in Matthew, but this is great. I guess this is a really good place you to go. You can read Matthew 24 <laughs> all day long. and <laughs> That's exactly right. Matthew 24, again, I know we've been here a lot, but this is a, is a good place to go. I want to show you again why the, the less likely interpretation is going to be the preterist or the post-millennial interpretation. Uh, look at Matthew 24, verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I've told you beforehand, they say, you know, go into the wilderness. Uh, if they say, go, in, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, stop here. Most post-mill people that I'm aware of take this as referring to 70 A.D., so Jesus comes back and the stars fall from heaven when Jerusalem is destroyed. And you go, what? And it, here's, now, there is something here to defend this, although I don't, I don't think it's right. Okay, just hang with me. Isaiah, I think it's chapters 13 and 34. Those two chapters use cosmic deconstruction language like stars falling to describe the end of, say, Babylon or Assyria. Okay, so it, it isn't without precedent that a prophet will use cosmic language to describe what is not literally cosmic. But they, they will take this as, this is 70 AD, then look at verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. 
Well, they're going to take that as not tribes of the earth, but they're going to take it as tribes of the land, as in the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's the less likely interpretation. Most translations don't go there. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Well, not literally, but through the army of the Romans, they see Christ behind it coming to judge them. Verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Do we all know what that's talking about? That's gathering his saved his people, his elect, when he actually returns. Like when, when he comes back, the trumpet is sounded. We are gathered, caught up together with the Lord in the air, but not according to the preterist post-mill view. No, no, no. This is referring to the trumpet may have something to do with the gospel. And what's happening is he's gathering his elect by the preaching of the gospel throughout the church age. He's gathering his elect from the four winds. This is the triumph of the Great Commission. I mean, Don Carson was the best. If you want to hear a great, Don Carson, if you, if you look Don Carson Olivet Discourse, he has like seven or eight hour-long lectures, and he does a superb job refuting the post-mill view. But Don Carson is so good. He goes, okay, with the Greek language, certain, you know, in English, certain words can mean five different things. It is not inconceivable that you could change tribes of the earth to tribes of the land, meaning the 12 tribes of Israel, and all, you could keep, you, okay, you can bend the Greek and make it kind of work for the post-mill view, you get the problem? You end up having to take the less likely view of each phrase. When you put all the phrases together, Carson says, any Christian reading with a clear mind, reading this text, when they see all these phrases together, what are they thinking about? As lightning comes from one side of the sky to the other, Jesus will come back visibly. A trumpet will sound. All of his elect will be gathered together to meet him. This is clearly the second coming, not A.D. 70 and the triumph of the gospel in the church age. So when you put the phrases together, yes, in Greek, you can bend it and try to make it work, but you have to take the less likely interpretation of each phrase to get postmillennialism to work. And I'm going, it's too difficult. The, the more obvious interpretation fits perfectly with the view that we're arguing for. In my opinion, it fits perfectly. And, and uh, this is referring to Christ's final triumphant return at the end of the church age. Well, and Paul certainly didn't take Jesus to be saying that. Because yeah, 1 yeah. Thessalonians chapter 4, I believe Paul is making use of what Jesus taught on this to inform the Thessalonians. If you want to turn there, I yeah. want you to see this. This is big. Where Paul, are we going? 1 uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll look at... Um, We'll start in verse 13, but I want to focus mostly on 16 and 17, okay? Paul, I think, is, is talking about the exact same thing Jesus does. Um, he's, he's leaning on what Jesus said and applying that to the situation that the Thessalonians are experiencing. And he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep, for we declare, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And listen to verse 16, and think what we just read in Matthew 24. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, because you might read what Jesus said in Matthew 24, and it just talks about gathering his elect that are on earth. And we say, well, what about those who are already with him? 
So Paul is taking what Jesus said and he's helping, he's making sure the Thessalonians don't misunderstand it and misapply it to mean that the only people who are going to be resurrected are Christians who are alive when Jesus comes back. Paul's saying, listen, the dead in Christ and those who are alive when he returns are all going to be resurrected. Yeah. And in fact, the dead are going to rise first. Like Paul's saying, you're not going to miss those who've already died in the Lord. And where does Paul get the language that he uses? Matthew 24 and what Jesus said. And so to to take Matthew 24 as symbolic of the triumph of the gospel, like the rest of the New Testament doesn't take Matthew 24 that way, so we shouldn't either. Now, go to 2 Thessalonians 1. I know these are passages we've looked at several times, but from a slightly different angle this time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if I could just mention, so John Piper is not a mill. He's historic pre-mill, but that's not really the point. He was debating Doug Wilson on this very issue, and it's a fun little thing. It's on YouTube. It's like 15 minutes long, and they're going back and forth, and Piper and him are kind of jabbing at each other because they they both think the other person's wrong. And uh, Piper goes, what do you do with 2 Thessalonians 1, Doug? He says to to him, and look at 2 Thessalonians 1. This is the verse Piper refers to. Uh, Verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are also suffering. That means non-believers are persecuting. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, that's unbelievers, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, this is Christians, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with, with, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Does it sound like there's going to be a pretty big mess in the world when Jesus comes back? There's a mass persecution against the church that Jesus is going to come back with fire to stop, which means the world has not been completely Christianized. And so Piper throws that at Doug Wilson, and Doug Wilson goes, he actually had some humility to say this. He goes, I haven't preached through the Thessalonian letters yet because I'm not ready. <laughs> Doug Wilson said. So he, he, in another interview, if you've seen the evening of eschatology on Desiring God, where Sam mm-hmm. Storms, uh, James Hamilton, Doug Wilson, and John Piper debate that's the, a great The, the post-mill, amill, uh, historic pre-mill view. They sit around a little round table. It's two hours mm-hmm. long. It's really good. And um, they, at the end of the discussion of two hours, you know, whew, that's long. At the end of two hours, uh, they, each person has to say what they think is the weakest part of their own view. That's, I, I like that. You know, you say the weakest part of your own position. And they get to Doug, and Doug says, handling the Thessalonian letters is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, I haven't preached through it. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. So he, he admitted that Thessal- I think the Thessalonian letters are the death knell to post-mill on top of these other things that we've mentioned as well, because I, I don't think it works very well. But you see here, there's a big mess of persecution going on when Jesus comes back. And that doesn't sound like a fully Christianized planet. And I, I don't want to misrepresent Doug's position, because he does believe there will be non-Christians left. But this sounds like a pretty big mess when, when Jesus comes back uh, for his return. Wow. Yeah, um, we got time. Yes, one, one other thing. Back to Revelation chapter 1, if you will. Mark, you mentioned this, um, was it in Matthew 13 or wherever, about the tribes of the yeah, land yeah. versus yes. the tribes That's of the earth. Point. No, it's Matthew 24. Um, Matthew where where is it here? Um, it's in Revelation 1. Yeah, it's Revelation 1. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, Revelation 1, um, 7. John's writing to the mm-hmm. churches. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Same thing that they did in Matthew, the post-millennialist has to do here. This can't be the whole earth. It has to be just the tribes of Israel in the land of Israel. Now, I'll mention this because um, the New Testament does something that does surprise us. It takes Old Testament promises to the people of God and it globalizes them. Yeah. 
like, and here's what I mean. One more, one more flip. I apologize for, you're getting <laughs> a finger workout. Romans chapter 4. I want you to see this. Um, Romans chapter 4, verse 13. This is huge. Mm-hmm. Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Wait, I thought it was about the land and Canaan and all of that. And yet the New Testament globalizes what the Old Testament put in regional terms. And it's not going against the intention. Um, It's simply helping bringing out the full extent of what God was promising in that initial promise. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if, if Paul does that, and there's other places as well, I think John does it too. Jesus does it in that, like, it's talking about the entire world. It globalizes that. Abraham, um, because he's going to be the, the father of many nations and all the families will be blessed through him. And we know that the land in the Old Testament is a prefiguring type of the eternal state and of the, the kingdom and all of that. Um, then guess what? The, the tribes in Judah and their rejection of Jesus and their piercing him in mourning, that is, in, that is looking forward to the whole world. Because what, what even in the book of Acts, yeah, the, the Jewish people are the ones who crucified Jesus, but it also talks about Herod and Pontius Pilate um, and the Gentiles, which is representative of the whole world. Um, and so again, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Don't make it say something it's not. Let the, the New Testament take us where the New Testament takes us and don't try to go somewhere else. Okay, we're bringing the plane in for a landing here. Let's go to the last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. And I only read this quote from Doug maybe a week or so ago, and I almost fell out of my chair when I read his interpretation of Revelation 21 22, because I had never heard it from anyone in my entire life. Maybe he's the only, I don't know if other post-mill people hold this view, but it shocked me that he taught this. So look at Revelation 21. We know these, ver- these chapters. I'm just going to read a few verses. Look at Revelation 21 uh, verse, well, at the end of chapter 20, you see uh, the lake of fire, uh, verse 15, anyone's name is not written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. And then chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying from, uh, from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he said, I'm making all things new. Okay. Virtually all Christians, except for Doug, virtually all Christians I've ever heard in my life. I mean, I would say every other Christian I've ever heard. This is the only person I've ever heard not say this, so I don't know how to exaggerate. I've never heard this before. Everyone I know says, this is the new creation. New heavens and new earth. Like the old, the old heavens and earth have passed away. There's a new creation, like the new world, the new earth that we're going to live on with Christ forever. That this chapter 21 and 22 doesn't happen yet. It has not happened yet. It will not happen until after the final judgment in chapter 20 and after Jesus uh, casts unbelievers into the lake of fire, then there's a new creation. Like that's like not hard. I think that's like, you ready for Doug's take on this? I'm going to close on a really, really critical note here. Okay. So this is, this, I'm not making it up. It's the blue part, okay? I'm not, this is not made up. You can come look at it for yourself. This is his take on the last two chapters of the Bible. I don't know what to say. Quote, we are seeing here the transition between the first heaven and the first earth, the Judaic aeon, and the new heavens and new earth, the Christian aeon. He thinks this is referring to the overlap between 30 and 70 AD. 
that the new heavens and new earth came with Christ and that it's coming onto earth now and that we're in the new heavens and new earth. It's here now. We're in the millennium. Christ is now ruling and the old heavens and earth passed away in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. Okay? For various reasons, I do not take the view. I I do not take the new heaven and new earth as referring to the post-second coming eternal state. Then he says, so I take the first heaven and earth as the Judaic aeon and the new heaven and earth as the Christian aeon, and these two aeons overlapped, the latter beginning at Pentecost, 30 AD, and the former ending with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. He thinks that the old heavens and earth have already entirely passed away with the destruction of Jerusalem, and now we are in the new heavens and new earth because Christ is reigning, right? we're in the millennium. The millennial reign is here. So 30 AD is when the new, the new Jerusalem started coming down to earth in 30 AD. As the gospel triumphs, the new creation is coming and coming more and more and more. It's taking over, and eventually it will usher in the final eternal state down the way. But now, you read 21 and 22, we're not there. Yes, this, this is why I say <laughs> taking the less likely interpretation on many important texts. And I, I, I love Doug, and I agree with him on many important things, but on this issue, I, I just... I wish he was right. I would love for post-mill to be true, but it's just, I don't think it's... I don't, I don't like the correct. term aeon because Gnosticism uses aeons, you know? <clears throat> right, splitting it up in a certain way. Right. All right, Papa, we got to close. Can you pray for us? Yes, sir. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to study Revelation and to open a window into the world to come. You remind us that there are new heavens and a new earth dawning all that is evil and and wicked will pass away in the world that is to come. In that world, there'll be no more tears, no more pain, and and no more death. The joy of dwelling with God and the Lamb will never, ever grow old. Help us to pray with John as he reveals to his readers uh, to persevere because he wants us to enjoy the dwelling place of God. And thus we should hear and heed what he says, these words of revelation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Amen. 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 Next week, okay, I hope this doesn't make you go, oh boy. We've got one more week to talk about next week. Okay, now here's here's the plan. It's not so much about the millennium, although it is about the millennium. The big issue next week is... Uh, how to interpret Old Testament prophecies about the future of Israel and the future of the world. This is very difficult, and it's the place where I would say someone like a John MacArthur and where we're trying to argue would probably be the most different in terms of a, a position. But it, it's, a, it's a very important issue on hermeneutics, how you interpret prophecies in the Old Testament. So that's going to be Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. We're going to look at a smattering of passages there and try to figure out how they are fulfilled in the New Covenant. All right, we are done. Thank you all.